So our text is Revelation 11, verses 1 to 13. Revelation 11, 1 to 13. This also is God's holy word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. May we go to our God and ask for, his, uh, ask for the Lord's blessings on the reading and the preaching of God's holy word. <clears throat> our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your provision of your word, that your word is clear, <clears throat> that your word is good. Father, we thank you, for you always speak what is right and true. Father, we pray that we might delight in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would trust in you, that we would honor Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would not fear man, but that we would have a healthy fear of you. We pray, Father, for the good news of the gospel to go forward with power even this day, that if any are here who have not committed their life to Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do that mighty work. Father, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. As we think through the history of the church, what we see is that the church has continued on. The church continues to grow. And whenever you look at a situation in which a government, a ruler, a, a, anyone in power, if they see Christianity as a threat and attempt to use a hammer to stamp them out, it will only cause the Christian church to flourish and grow. When you look at how power, the eye of our flesh looks at power and fears power, the power of man. 
It is only by the eye of faith that you and I can respect and honor and fear the power of God. And the more we live by the fear of the flesh, the eye of faith, the less we will walk according to the Spirit. We want, we want to look at, hey, how is it that the Christian church has continued to survive in, uh, whether you call it 2,000 years or 6,000 years, right? Because whether or not the church started at Pentecost or far before that, we can, de we can debate that some other time. But we look and we see that how those regimes, those governments, those rulers who hated Christianity the most and tried to punish them and extinguish them the hardest, where are they now? They are gone. If it's a single ruler, he's come to an end. His life has, has come to an end. If, if it were a lineage, meaning that his children, they've come to an end. If it were a government, they've all died off. So you ask, who is superior? Who, who has been guided? Who has been protected throughout this time? What is the Christian church? They're still going on. They're still advancing. Those rulers who oppose Christ, they are the ones who brought themselves to their own judgment. And so we ought to see power rests not with man, not with the sword, not with the bow, not with the gun. Power rests with God, and he is the one who has commissioned his church to be this authoritative witness. Although the church appears to be defeated, she is not. She is advancing, and it requires the eye of faith to be able to see that. When we think about this book of Revelation, it was written during a time of much persecution and affliction, and it seemed like the unyielding power of the despots, the Caesars, who, who opposed Christianity. They saw it as a threat. That when, when Christians were saying, Jesus is Lord, Caesar was requiring to say, you must say that Caesar is Lord. And how long did that Roman Empire last? Roman Empire essentially uh, killed itself with its own corruption. It imploded a few hundred years at best. Here we think about how Revelation, what now we think about it as, hey, all of Revelation, what for, at least from chapter 4 to chapter 22, that all applies to some future time. I don't think that would be the best interpretation because it has no bearing upon that first century recipient and it has no bearing upon the history of the church over, over the last 2,000 years. And we must be thinking that Revelation was written in such a way and it applied to those who were in the first century. And it applies to you and I today and it applied to the church throughout time. So we think about how we ought to interpret Revelation. We must understand the promises of God in Revelation 1.3 that God had promised blessing upon the reading, the hearing, and the keeping of his, of his word. That when God said that the reading of this word, that he would bless it. How many books of the Bible does it open with such a promise? That even as we think through the repetition, we see that uh, there's many different scenes, many different visions. And it's not linear from beginning to end, uh, from Revelation 4 to Revelation 22, speaking about linear time. But it's telling us in various scenes the same things that are happening from Christ's ascension to his return. So whether it be the seals or the trumpets or the bowls, what, what we're seeing is that God is providing for us different, uh, different visions and different scenes so that we might understand what he's doing. And throughout these scenes, 
uh, what we have is oftentimes you have these interludes, these intermissions. Very much like children, you, you go to a play, you go to a musical. <clears throat> that there's too much input going in, too much stimulation. And those who, the, who directed it, those who wrote it say, hey, you know what, we, we need to have you come to an end and, and uh, get, get some break from all that's happening. And we see the same thing that happens in the book of Revelation. That between the, uh, the sixth and the seventh seal, there was, in, there was an interlude. And then we're currently in Revelation 10 and, and 11, there's an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So here we see in Revelation 11, 1 to 13, the church must witness faithfully of Christ, even in her outward appearance of defeat, with full confidence, with full confidence in his victory. The church must witness faithfully of Christ, even in her, in her outward appearance of defeat, with full confidence in his victory. We'll look at this in four points. The first, the true identity of Christ's church, in verses 1 and 2. Second, the authoritative witness of Christ's church, in verses 3 through 6. And third, the apparent defeat of Christ's church, in verses 7 through 10. And fourth, the public triumph of Christ's church, in verses 11 to 13. So the first point, the true identity of Christ's church in verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. We think back to Revelation 6, that there was a plea of of the martyrs who had died, whose blood was spilt on the altar. The question was, God, when will you avenge the blood of your martyrs? And keep in mind that these, these weren't those who were living because their blood was spilled. They're, they're already dead. Uh, so the request of God must have been a, a righteous, a holy request. And God had promised that he clothed them in white. He said, rest a little while longer, that that time had not yet come. Here, we think about how much of what's come since Revelation 6 has been an answering of when will, when will the blood of the martyrs be avenged? <clears throat> Revelation 8 and 9, God answers regarding the avenging the blood of the martyrs on those who dwell upon the earth. That there was uh, the, the giving of the trumpets. The first four trumpets had to do with the cataclysmics cataclysmic events of hail and fire, and then the mountains fall into the sea, and a third of the, uh, of the sea be turns into blood, and then there's a, a great star that fell from heaven, and a third of the stars were struck. Then in the fifth trumpet, the opening of a bottomless pit with demons that appeared like locusts that came to torment unbelievers. In the sixth trumpet, the evil angels, uh, the fallen angels, meaning the demons, that they were released from bondage to kill a third of mankind. And even with that torment and death, Revelation 9, 20 and 21, we're told that of those who dwell upon the earth, they refuse to repent of their idolatry. They refuse to repent of, of their immorality. That they were the same ones who were saying, uh, with, with the seals, fall on us. You're calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from uh, the wrath of the Lamb, our Lord Jesus. In Revelation uh, chapter 10, uh, to our passage, this is the uh, second description of an interlude. 
between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. <clears throat> in Revelation 10, there was the little scroll. And uh, the one who held the scroll had his right foot in, on the sea and his left foot on the land. And this is the description that our Lord Jesus has full dominion over land and sea. That is all that there is in this world. There's, there's land and there's sea, and he has dominion over all of it. Revelation 10, verses 5 to 7, that describes the certainty of God's promises. All that the, were foretold by, by, the, by Moses and the prophets will be fulfilled as God has said. That none of God's promises will fail. None of his word will fail. All of God's promises are yea and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 10, verses 8 through 10, describes the bittersweet word of God that uh, John was told to eat the scroll. And it was sweet in his mouth, but we're told that it was bitter in his stomach. And so also, the word of God, we, we understand, is that it indeed is sweet because of the good news of the gospel that we who are sinners may find true hope of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That the guilt that the world wrestles with and struggles with and takes medication for, that here we ought to understand that God is one who frees us from that guilt. That we have true forgiveness and true hope. That we trust that the full payment that, that we deserve, the full payment of wrath, Jesus has taken upon himself. And that the very righteousness that we lack, Jesus freely gives to us. That you, you are commanded to receive it by faith. And yet, we also understand that the word of God is bitter. It's bitter because it causes division. It causes division uh, in marriage. It causes division in families, in households, in communities. That uh, when, when do you see the, the most ardent, and, and the most uh, uh, emotional responses. We see it when people uh, react against those who share the good news of the gospel. And we acknowledge that that's part of the bitterness of it. That Jesus said that he came uh, and, and his, the result of his coming is that it would bring a sword. That others would hate us. May it not be because we are foolish, prideful, insensitive. May it be because we represent Jesus Christ. And that uh, when they see in us, they, they hear the message. They see the testimony of Jesus our Lord. And we see in these verses 1 and 2 that the New Testament gives a new usage for the word temple. <clears throat> Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So, I've spoken about how, when was Revelation written? It was written by John the Apostle. Was it written in the 60s, uh, what's called the early, early writing theory, or was it written in the 90s? Most of the evidence points to a later writing uh, in the AD 90s period, uh, during the reign of Domitian. So, we think about uh, what would have happened in 70 AD would have been the destruction of the temple. So, here, uh, this idea, rise and measure the temple of God. Ultimately, is it the building? No, it's not the building. That Judaism focused on the temple. You think about how the entire religion uh, in, in the coming of Christ, the destruction of the temple, 
that their entire religion had to change. It wasn't temple focused anymore. It had to be synagogue focused because there were no more sacrifices. There's, there's something about history and God's control of history that tells us the fact that no temple existed then and no temple exists now, that there was a finality to Christ's sacrifice. No more sacrifices needed. The one, the only, the final sacrifice is done. So the temple, even as Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. The temple was not the building. It's not the material. The temple is Jesus. The temple is the people of God. And the mention there, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Ultimately, the church is never a building. The church is its people. That this is, what, uh, this is what is valuable to God, is that his people are valuable to him. Then in verse 2, I mentioned, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. When we think about the temple... There was the inner part, uh, the Holy of Holies, and then there was the holy place outside of it, and then there was a section, the, uh, the court of women, and then there was the court of the Gentiles. So uh, supposedly if Gentile went there, he, he couldn't get into the temple, right? He remained in the court of the Gentiles. And if this is what John is referring to, that um, <clears throat> do not measure the court outside the temple, it's referring to the court of the Gentiles, and uh, here Gentiles is not referring to a non-Jew. It's referring to a non-Christian, someone who is uh, an unbeliever. And the description there is that, uh, trampling the holy city. It's not Jerusalem. It's describing the church. We ought to understand that uh, this is God's plan, that his church would be trampled upon. The holy city would be trampled upon. And the 42 months is not actually a literal 42 months, 40, 42 times 30 days. Ultimately, you look at the numbers in Revelation, they're, they're not specific and exact numbers. It's describing a long period of time. And perhaps, uh, perhaps some of you may be wondering, children, perhaps you're wondering, why does it have to be this way? Why the trampling of the holy city? Why the trampling of Christ's church? Well, stop and think for a moment. If, if you were always healthy and wealthy and possessed earthly power and worldly favor, would there ever be a need for you to pray? Let's be realistic. I don't think there would be. We would tend to think that, hey, uh, everything comes so easily. There would be no reason for us to pray. There would be no occasion. And so also when we think about the church, is it the church that is in a similar place made up of similar people who think the similar way? We think about how in our suffering we come to a greater dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of the sufferings being conformed to his death. It's when sinners who trust in Jesus Christ suffer for his name. It is then that you and I begin to count the cost. And we ask, 
Is it worth it? And the conclusion that you and I must come to each time as we're counting the cost is we must be saying, Jesus, you are more than worth it. Whatever shame, whatever rejection, whatever animosity the world gives us, we have to be uh, constantly concluding, you know what? This is nothing compared to the comfort that I have in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're going to say, you know what? The acceptance, the, uh, the favor of the world is going to be better. And I, and I assure you, there will, there will be many. There will be many who, who will conclude that, you know what? Jesus, it's not worth it. Whatever you've promised me, I, I, I can't see it. I can't believe it. I'd rather have the world. And, and, and that's how life will be, that there will be many who, who formally follow Jesus and said, hey, I tried that Jesus, but you know what? Uh, too much suffering, too much rejection. I, I, I want the worldly favor. I, I want the health and the wealth, and, and there's too much loss. What about for you? Have you counted the cost? Have you thought about what it means to follow Jesus Christ? Did some preacher man or woman promise you health and wealth in following Jesus Christ? Here, the testimony of God's word, even in Revelation 11, says this is not so. That with you comes eternal riches, every heavenly blessing in, in the, the places. Not here, but on, uh, not here, but in heaven. And that in the meantime, what we have is that we get to learn what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. And that comes through suffering and rejection. We won't come to understand the, the fellowship of his sufferings, the joy in being in Christ. Unless we have also the negatives, the, the rejection of the world. So this is the first point, the true identity of Christ's church. We have the second point, the authoritative witness of Christ's church in verses 3 through 6. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So uh, what is given here by who to whom? The I that is speaking is Jesus. He's the who. The recipient of the giving are the two witnesses. They're mentioned in verse 3. Now grant authority. So I, Jesus, he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. So who are these two witnesses? People come up with all kinds of interesting ideas. I, I recall uh, that um, Ligonier had a had in like an 800 number, you call and ask him questions, and one of the guys who was on that line is, hey, today I just talked to a guy who claimed to be one of these two witnesses. I said, wow, it's rather interesting. You must, you must run into all kinds of, of, of cool people. Uh, uh, no, not so, right? So, so you think about these two witnesses, and, and you think back to the Old Testament, or even the New Testament. Truth is established on the basis of two or three witnesses. We still have that principle, even in the court. Right, in the court, we have DNA evidence now, which it didn't have back then, but this man murdered that man. Well, how is it established? Well, two or three witnesses. And when you think about the church, it is the witness of Christ. Christ, even when he was 
uh, on earth, when he sent out the 72, how did he send them out? He sent them out two by two. He sent them out two by two to every town and place where he himself was about to go. They're two witnesses. We think about what it is that Jesus gives. Verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. But the word authority wasn't given there. Some versions say power, some versions say authority, but that's, that's assumed. That what Jesus is giving is this authoritative power uh, to the church. That they would bear witness of Jesus Christ, of his death and resurrection. That they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. That this prophesy or prophecy is, is not a foretelling. Normally we think about prophecy as in, hey, this person's going to tell the future. That's not the focus. Uh, prophecy uh, primarily is not foretelling, it's forthtelling. It's speaking of, as we see even in Revelation throughout its mention, uh, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So it's forthtelling. It's speaking about what God has revealed to us in his word. It's telling about Jesus Christ, what he has done, what he came to do. Here we also think about numbers that in Revelation, the numbers are not literal. 1260 days, you notice uh, 42 months times 30 days is 1260 days. And what we ought to understand is that these numbers are symbolic. It's speaking about the time between uh, Christ's ascension and his second coming. We think about how the prophesy then, the prophecy then, is about the church testifying of Jesus Christ throughout time. It's testifying to the world that Jesus will one day return and he will judge the wicked, that he commands that sinners will repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. And the time to do it is not in old age, the time to do it is now. And how it will be done, notice there in verse, at the end of verse 3, clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth. Is a, symbol of, is a symbol of humility, a symbol of debasement, symbol of sorrow and mourning or of repentance. So when it says that the church, the two witnesses prophesied and they did it in sackcloth, that it is a reminder to us that, uh, that you and I, when we bear witness of the gospel, that we must be careful of the manner in which we do it. <clears throat> that there can never be, there can never be uh, some type of uh, odd satisfaction when people reject it and, and we, we look forward to their judgment and their condemnation. And the question often comes up, well, is it ever right to rejoice when the wicked die or are punished? Here, we think about the very heart of God in Ezekiel 18, that God said he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That his delight is rather that they would turn and repent. And if you and I know anything about God, then we must love what he loves. We must hate what he hates. So for us, we ought to, to refrain. Even, even when wicked rulers who rule, when, when their term comes to an end, when they die, whatever's the case, we cannot be those who rejoice at their death. Because there is an understanding that with death comes judgment. So when we proclaim the good news of the gospel, 
there must be grief, there must be mourning when others reject it. Here we see also in verse 5, the mention, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. This is how he is doomed to be killed. This is saying when the wicked do harm against those who proclaim the good news of the gospel, when earthly rulers in power, uh, when, when they lord it over those who are Christians to persecute them, it's saying that what they do before God's people, what they do to God's people, will, will spell their own end. The principle of a man reaps what he sows. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You think about even this verse describes who you and Christ are. You're God's temple. And if anyone destroys that temple, it says God will destroy him. Meaning that if, if the wicked come to harm God's people, it's not saying God's going to stop every single one of them because there are going to be Christians who die, who are martyred. That's, that's the reality. That's what we have in the scriptures. That we, that's what we see throughout history. But it's saying that those who raise their hand against them, they will be judged for it. It won't be forgotten. Here, it's easy for us to look at these verses. And it says that fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Again, you see that Revelation is uh, apocalyptic language. Uh, They have the power to shut the sky that no, no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Here, we're reminded again, the principle of properly interpreting the book of Revelation. Uh, we shouldn't have the, the Bible open to Revelation and your newspaper to, to interpret the book. Rather, we should have the Old Testament. Here, there's many mentions of the Old Testament uh, in Revelation. That the power to shut the sky so there's no rain. Okay? That sounds like Elijah, right? He prayed, was it for three and a half years that would not, would not rain? And to turn the water into blood, it sounds like Moses. And uh, how he he dipped his staff into the Nile, and the Nile bled. And it's easy for us to to get focused on, well, we're going to have that power too. That we won't be harmed by snakes, or whatever it might be. But you realize, that shouldn't be the focus. We see that Jesus rebuked his disciples when, when he sent out the 72. And... His disciples came back and rejoicing that even the evil spirits were subject to them. And that Jesus said to them, Luke 10, 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Ultimately, what is that power? The power is not that we have all these powers, these miraculous powers. Rather, it's that when we share with others the good news, God's power is manifested when he changes the heart of sinners. We obviously don't have that power. 
It's only the power of the Holy Spirit by which sinners can be turned from sinful ways that they might desire new life in Jesus Christ. Perhaps this is really the test. For sinners, people know others, and they say, well, I knew that person. He is a sinner. That I've witnessed him. We've, we've done it together, whatever that might have been. And, and then they witness the change of this person comes to know Jesus Christ. And they say, hey, let's go and do the things we once did, that which was sin. And the person says, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that anymore. And, and they witness, hey, this is a changed person. And that is the power that's at work in God's people, that he changes us. And as we share this message of hope, he changes others. And you realize that we cannot control that power. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. We're reminded of our weakness. We're reminded of our need for prayer, even as we bear witness of this good news to others. So this is the authoritative witness. The third is the apparent defeat of Christ's church in verses 7 through 10. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. <clears throat> so the beast from the bottomless pit, that was mentioned in Revelation 9. That was the, at the release, or it was, this beast was released at the fifth trumpet. So this is not Satan himself, but the, the Antichrist, uh, one who is under Satan's authority. That he will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. What we see in verses 8 and 9 is the desecration of the church, the desecration of Christians, that their dead bodies will be in the street of the great city, and others will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And we think about what happens if there's a dead body out in the streets or out, out in the open. Well, the concern is that uh, you have the uh, animals of the land and the animals of the air, like the birds of the air, scavengers will come and eat them. That this was part of God's description of his judgment on his own people. He said, if you disobey me, this is what will happen to you. And the, the dwellers of the earth, the unbelievers, that they won't allow for a proper burial. They won't allow for the pang of respect for Christians, those who bore witness of the gospel. They desire for them to be desecrated. Allowing for the mutilation or the consumption of these bodies by scavengers. And we're told that those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. This sounds like a joyous occasion. You think about it. Hey, they're, they're going to say, hey, this is great. So-and-so who, who keeps telling us about the good news of the gospel, telling us of the judgment to come, at least he's silenced. We don't have to hear that anymore. They exchange presents with one another. Was it? This is what happened uh, in the time of Christ, right? that you think about Pilate and Herod, that these were two rulers who were somehow rivals. They didn't like each other, but then because of Christ, they became friends. <clears throat> Here we continue, and we speak about how uh, the reason behind it all. It says, because these two prophets 
had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That's the underlying reason. That the reason why Christians are disliked is because the message that we bear by the life that we live, uh, the good news that we share, the hope that we have, that this is the voice of conscience to the unbeliever. That whether it be some type of uh, you know, pride, uh, the motivations of pride, of I don't need that Jesus that you believe in. I have enough righteousness of my own. So pride, self-righteousness, uh, whether or not there, there be an admitted love of sin. That there are people who claim to love Jesus, but if they love their sin more, then I, I guess they're not really following Jesus. But the bottom line here is there is a torment that's involved. A torment because they know there's a coming judgment. We see that when the Apostle Paul was witnessing to this ruler named Felix, Acts 24, 25. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. That there was a fear. Oh, he's talking about the judgment to come. He realizes my sins will be revealed. They will be uncovered, every single one of them. Similarly, we see uh, when a pilot was there examining Jesus, he receives a message from his wife, Matthew 27, 19. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Here we think about how all these unbelievers, I mean, do you, do you attempt to torment them? Is that your desire? It should never be. We should desire that they would have life. This is what our prayers ought to be, that they who are lost might be found that they who are outside of Christ would be found in him. That this should be our prayer, our desire. And, and we, we ought to understand that, that dynasties and governments and despots, they attempt to stamp out this message because it's a torment to them. It's a reminder that there is someone they answer to, that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is the one who calls those who have authority and power to an account. Yet, we also see that the reality is that the more the church is persecuted, the more she thrives. The more the governments oppose, the quicker they themselves will die. It's no surprise that governments and lands, that they will eventually make laws against evangelism. You think about the, the laws of, of free speech that we have in our country. Are they primarily there to protect those who want to encourage others to immorality, to lawlessness, to rioting, to rebellion? No. They were there to promote the gospel witness and protect uh, the freedom to do so. You think about how in other lands, talk to a friend who, uh, who often brought the gospel to uh, those in another country. I won't mention which country because it's not important. But uh, how in that culture, he said that the Christians who were testifying of the good news, that the, the indigenous people of that land would routinely spit on them. Routinely, as in like, this is common. Every day they were sp spat upon. And, and we think about what else would happen. 
You think about the responses that you and I can have. The reactions to these scriptural warnings. One response is a survival mentality. I will do whatever it takes to survive or to succeed in this world. Yes, I have loyalties to Christ, but I also have loyalties to myself, to my family. I, I need to do whatever it takes to provide for my family and, and to see those in conflict somehow. So if that means that uh, I, I'm required to burn incense to whoever, uh, Caesar, uh, then I will do that. And never mind the fact that burning incense to these false gods is actually demons. And you and I are reminded that uh, for us as Christians, speech is not merely hot air. It's not something that we say. It's not a noise that we make. Either we're bowing the knee to Jesus Christ or bowing the knee to a false god. Perhaps people will say, so long as I get to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable and my children are safe, I'm all for it. Is that your primary duty? Or is it your primary duty to serve the Lord Jesus, whatever the cost? Here, Revelation is a reminder to us that this is what the church has been called to throughout time. There's various ways in our intellect that we can reason this. Well, we think about it, uh, most of the people won't believe it anyway, so wh why do we need to do it? Is it enough that our Lord Jesus said, hey, uh, the good news of the gospel needs to be brought forth. He's given the church the Great Commission. And the fact that Jesus said we ought to do it, is that enough for you and for me? Do it. This is what Jesus said. He didn't say do it because many will hear it and believe it. The majority, no, he never said that. He told, he told us, hey, like the majority will reject it and they'll hate you for it. But he still said to do it. Are you ready to commit yourself? To commit yourself to be faithful and obedient to the Lord Jesus? And that you and I would say that we would do so whatever the cost. Is this the instruction that you and I give? The testimony, the example that we give to our children? Hey, listen, we're going to share the gospel. And we're going to get some strange responses. And you talk to your children. Hey, this is, how this is often how people will do it. They're going to reject us. They're going to stop talking to us, perhaps. But you know what? It's not because we've done something wrong. It's because we've done something right. This is part of teaching the generation to come about our Lord Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, to understand, so that they also can have the right values and the right expectations. So that's the third point, the apparent defeat. We have the fourth point, the public triumph of Christ's church. <clears throat> public triumph. <clears throat> Verses 11 to 13. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on, on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here, we ought to understand, uh, there's a way that we interpret the scriptures. It's called the analogy of faith, or we can say scripture interprets scripture. Meaning that other passages in the Bible talk about what's happening here in verses 11 to 13. We think about Matthew 24, think about 1 uh, Thessalonians 4, uh, speaking about what the return of Christ looks like. 
the mention of three and a half days. Uh, at least we ought to understand it was a very brief period in comparison to the 1260 days that the breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Imagine the scene that there were those who killed these Christians. Finally, that person's voice is quiet. We don't have to hear this Jesus anymore. And, and for them to witness, while well, this person has come back. They've come out of their grave. I mean, isn't this exactly what happened with Herod? That Herod, uh, because of his wife Herodias, who said, I want John the baptizer's head on a platter, and he did it. And, and then when there was Jesus preaching the good news, what did Herod conclude? He, he concluded was fearful. He says, that is John the baptizer uh, raised from the dead. And so also we see that again in verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Imagine what the enemies of Christ would be thinking as they see the Christian witness, those who were killed, raised up from the dead. And then the voice from heaven saying, come up here, and they're raised up. Wouldn't these people think, wow, I've been on the wrong side the whole time. And they would see that and say, this is spelling my condemnation, the blood that I shed. Here we're reminded that however a person has sinned, you realize that God still calls sinners even today to repentance. Isn't the Apostle Paul a witness of that, an example of it, that he was the one who was dragging off Christians to throw them in prison and the slaying of Christians, yet God showed his power in taking the very worst and saving them. We're told in verse 13 about a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell or killed. And then you have uh, the dwellers of the earth that they give glory to God. They give glory to the God of heaven. Does it necessarily mean that they were saved when, they, when we're told that they gave glory to the God of heaven? Maybe, not necessarily so. I mean, part of giving glory to God is acknowledging, acknowledging God, what you've said is true. You are victorious. We are the ones who are in the wrong. That there is an acknowledgement that God receives glory. And all of this, the earthquake, is a sign of the judgment to come. That oftentimes God uses earthquakes, and with it, it's the beginning of judgment. Here we think about his word and how it would be an encouragement to us. It's, been, it's an expectation of a bipolar response. For those who hear the good news of the gospel, to one it brings joy and hope and true delight when they find Jesus. And sometimes those who, who hear it may not have the right response right away. Oftentimes they're the ones who have the most negative response. But we see in due time that they come to see the good news of the gospel. Or there's the other opposite reaction. People are tormented in conscience, and they fear the judgment to come. That these are the generally the two categories of how people respond. Here, we're also reminded in this word from Revelation 11. Are you uncomfortable, even tormented, by the words of Christ from Revelation? Are you one who is set in complacency or mediocrity that you want to maintain the status quo? Or do you realize that being 
a Christian means you must count the cost. It is a dangerous thing to follow Christ, but would you have it any other way? We realize to follow Christ means we leave the world behind and we follow him, whatever the cost. We're thankful that he allows us warm beds to sleep in, especially when it's 25 below. But we realize also that he wants us to ask that question, what is that true comfort? Is it having all the nice things in the world? Is it having the best food? Is it having the nicest house? And, and you and I must be concluding, no, our comfort is in Jesus Christ. We can have none of those things because we're looking forward that he has prepared a place for us. All the comforts are going to be there. And that the, the path of suffering, the path of the cross, that these are small things, small sacrifices in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we trust in him. May we delight in him. And may you and I commit our lives to follow him. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for the necessary reminder about what it means to witness for Jesus Christ, what it means to live for him. Father, guard us from complacency. Guard us, Father, from, uh, from hiding in the closet that, Father, our Christianity must be witnessed by others. Father, we pray that we would be eager to live out our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, may we have our true and our highest identity in you and not in anything else. Father, we thank you that you have called us to new life. And Father, you have promised that you will be with us even to the very end of the age. We thank you for your provision for us. Grant us great boldness that we might live for you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.